Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this rich, deep, bottomless pit of truth, of revelation, of encouragement. And Lord, I ask and I pray that the instructions that we hear today, Lord, that we would, by the power of your Spirit, apply them to our own lives. And in doing so, Lord, there will be real, genuine, permanent change in our lives. Father, may this word go into us, Lord. May it find humble hearts. May it find good soil. May we be ready to receive and hear from you. For your glory. Amen. Amen. So, Colossians 3, we're picking up in verse 12. He has dealt with the main heresy problem. He's dealt with the problems of legalism and mysticism. People for whom the knowledge of Christ was insufficient. People for whom you know, having the revelation that Christ has given was not enough. They wanted to have extra revelation. They wanted to make extra rules. These different things. And he's addressed that head on. And he's, he's said, you know, that this do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, all these additional rules, it's not of Christ. And not only is it not of Christ, it doesn't protect us against our flesh. In fact, it is fueled by and it fuels the flesh. It fuels our sinful nature. It isn't bypassing sin, it is sin. And it comes from human traditions and it comes from uh, demonic sources ultimately. And so he's dealt with all that heresy. And then we came into chapter 3, he immediately says then, because, because you uh, have been raised with Christ, because of your association with Christ, this false teaching is not for you. But what is for you is heavenly living. And so any accusation that one would throw at Paul, saying, oh, Paul's not into rules, and Paul's not into, um, uh, you know, for fo following any of God's rules, Paul immediately put straight last week with that passage where he challenges us to live a godly life. And he continues in that vein in verse 12, and that's where we're going to pick up this week. Just by way of context, he has... Uh, emphasized, you know, not to lie with our lives, uh, to put off our old ways and put on our new ways, and the lack of distinction between us in the body, whatever our background, whatever our race, whatever our, our, the way in which we come, we come to Christ the same way, and therefore the way in which we are transformed by Christ is the same way. And that's really where we are when we are in verse 12. So, verse 12 then, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Well, I can't really proceed in this without drawing attention, those of you who are here for our studies in Ephesians, to the very, very obvious similarities to the beginning of Ephesians 4. When Paul started that section about to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called at the beginning of chapter 4, he summarizes what that walk looks like 
And he says, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And they're very, very similar. And the reason they're very similar is partly because of the parallels. Paul wrote both books about the same time. They'd have been delivered at the same time. But it's mostly because the Christian life is the same. It doesn't change. He doesn't say to the Colossian church, hey, you guys do it this way, but hey, you church over here, you do it a different way. The Christian life looks this way. doesn't matter what kind of church you go to, this is what the Christian life should be looking like. And so his summary here is slightly different. It gives us a little bit more insight to build on what we already know from Ephesians. But as you continued on through Ephesians, he talked about um, this new life in more detail and walking the right way. And there were lots of parallels to last week's section, not lying to one another, not being angry. That was there in Ephesians 4 and 5. And then Ephesians 5 comes to a close with the household code, husbands and wives and children and masters and servants and that kind of thing. And we have the same thing here in Colossians. So this is a real parallel that we have with Ephesians that we're going through. So much of this will be familiar. But looking at what Colossians specifically says, he says, put on then. This is the first of five commands we're going to see today. There are three commands in the first section, and then we get to verse 16, and then there's two further commands. And the first command is to put on then. So what he is about to tell us, the characteristics he's about to tell us, are things that we need to actively put on, like clothing. It's something that we need to wear. And there is this, this um, not tension, but paradox almost, between Christ transforming us from within through his Holy Spirit. He gives us his Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit empowers us and enables us, but we need to use that power, remember Ephesians 6 as warriors of God, we need to use that power to change. So it's not a case of we do it, and it's us who has to change. Christ changes us. But it's not a case of, hey, just lay back and let God do the work. We've got to put on. There's that, there's that uh, tension between the two concepts. Now, pardon me, the, the motivation he gives us to put these things on is he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, I know not everybody is fond of the doctrine of election, but every time it comes up in the Bible, I'm obliged to teach it. And it's there. And he says, you need to put on then as God's chosen ones. So in other words, the responsibility for us to put on is because we're Christians, because we're saved, and he describes it as being God's chosen ones. And that brings us back to Ephesians chapter 1. It brings us back to this concept that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, I know why people don't like election. I understand it. You, you, you have election and you say, well, God's chosen someone, so they're going to be okay whatever happens. And then there's somebody else that God hasn't chosen, so they're kind of stuffed whatever happens. And that doesn't seem fair. So what they then do is they go to the other side and they emphasize free will. They are choosing and making a decision. 
And either one of those extremes is wrong. The Bible teaches both. Now, don't ask me to explain it. Don't ask me to explain how I go through my life and I come to a point in my life and I make a decision. I did. I made a decision to follow Christ, to believe in him, to trust in him. And when I did so, it became apparent that God had chosen me from before the foundation of the world. Now, that's a paradox. And there are people who emphasize election to the extent that, you know, you might, it doesn't really matter what you do because, hey, what the heck, God's going to work it all out anyway. And we're seeing in this verse, isn't it an interesting contrast? You have a responsibility to put on, but you have been chosen. There's, two, there's that tension again between the two. But then equally, if we emphasize free will to the neglect of election, we remove God's sovereignty and his sovereign purposes in the universe. And this, Paul tells us as an encouragement, look, you were selected. Before the world was even created, God knew he was going to have you. That makes you important and precious. There's, he gave you his spirit. He redeemed you by the blood of his son because there's something for you. That whole section of Ephesians begins with chapter 1 and verse uh, 4, or 3 and 4, with um, the electing work of God. And that section ends in chapter 2 and verse 10 with him saying that we were saved not by works, but we were saved for works that he prepared beforehand. That's your link to the beginning of the section, him choosing beforehand. He prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. So when God chose you before the foundation of the world, before he even made this planet that we live on, he knew the job he, had you to, he was going to have you do. He knew the gifts he was going to give you. He knew your purpose in life. And saints, this is important. You have importance. You have value. Not in and of yourself. No, we're lousy sinners, little worms, whatever. But, but God has chosen us and he's placed his spirit within us. And he who is all sovereign and powerful is going to use us. And we are now, because of his saving work, we're now holy and blameless. We have his spirit and we can do this stuff. And it's a privilege and it's an honor. So be motivated by election. Look at the glory and the mystery of election and go, Wow, I just don't get it at all, but that is amazing. Let me not waste this life that God's given me. And so what are we to put on then, holy and beloved? Well, firstly, compassionate hearts. Secondly, kindness. Thirdly, humility. Fourthly, meekness. And fifthly, patience. So our hearts should be hearts of compassion, caring for one another. We need to be bothered about other people. Too often in churches... The, uh, the attitude towards the suffering is one of, here's a Bible verse, do what it says, come back to me when you've got it right. And if you don't get it right, don't come back to me. And it's disgusting. Our first port of call with anyone in, in need, anyone suffering, should always be compassion. To care. To come alongside people, to cry. 
You know, sometimes when people are struggling, yes, there's advice and there's help we could give, but that should never, ever come before coming alongside, hearing, listening, and if need be, weeping. You need to have compassionate hearts and care for one another. Secondly, we need to have kindness. That obviously follows on and goes with it quite nicely. We need to treat people with gentleness and kindness and not be harsh with them. There's too much harshness in churches, too much using the scripture as a stick to beat people with rather than as a tool for them to, for the broken to become made whole. And uh, we need to approach one another with kindness. Thirdly, humility. That is, of course, as we know, thinking of uh, someone as being more important than ourselves. And meekness is a similar kind of word. And there is this, this general sense being painted by these words in combination of behavior that really doesn't think of oneself as high and mighty. That, that it is concerned for other people. That despite our lives and our needs and our goals, there's always other people who have needs and they have goals and they have desires. And it's understanding how important those people are rather than just us. We live with one set of eyes. Every day I see, I see out from these eyes. And inwardly, I have my own processing and my own life and my own thoughts and my own desires. And it is a difficult thing for us sometimes to make this transition to, to constantly recognize that, that you look out at me with your eyes and you have your thoughts and your desires and your life. And that's the challenge for us to constantly remember and to, to not place ourselves high and above others. And the, the fifth thing in this list is patience. And again, I see this, I've seen it so often in church counseling situations where, you know, somebody is, is given advice and what have you, and then they struggle with that advice, they struggle applying that advice, and six months later, they're having the same problem again. And it is easy to wash our hands of one another when we frustrate each other. But we're family. We're a body. We're knitted together. Christ is our head. We don't do that. So how long are we patient for? As long as patience needs to be. That's, well, that's how it works. But then those words together paint a lovely picture. You know, too often today in this country, Christians recognize other Christians through superficial things. Oh, look, they've got a fish in their car. A little fish car sticker. They must be a Christian. Or the T-shirt that they're wearing. Something like that. Or, or even if it's behavior and beliefs, it's more a case of, you know, oh, they believe this politically or that. That's not Christian life. This is what distinguishes us. You want the world to know that you're a Christian? Be kinder than them. Be more compassionate than they are. Now there's a, cha a challenge for us, isn't it? That's how we distinguish ourselves. And then the following verse, the sixth thing, is bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. That's not one thing, that's two things. Forbearing and forgiving, number six and seven, on the list of things that we are to put on. 
We are going to do this. We're going to put this on. And notice the emphasis on one another here. This is how we treat each other. The world sees our character in more than anything else, how we treat each other within the body. How we prioritize one another, how we love, see how they love one another. That's what needs to be going on here. Now, forbearing and forgiving. This is an important distinction. I, when I was teaching at um, uh, a Bible college, I can remember having to repeat this to students three times and then still not getting it. So every time this comes up in the text, I'm going to explain it again and again, and hopefully it will sink in, because there's a lot of misinformation about forgiveness. We use the term, you know how we use the word hope? I really hope this will happen. You know, you know there's, 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 a, there's a sports game on, and I really hope my team wins. That means we've, we're kind of hoping it might happen, but maybe we're not very sure doesn't really give us any indication. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it's talking about assurance. And sometimes it's better to translate it as assurance so we don't miss the point. When Christ has given us a hope, it means he's given us a, a, something that we are guaranteed, an assurance. So, forgiveness is the same. It's a word that we use day to day that doesn't mean what we think it means. So, what does it mean? Well, let's start off with this, what it doesn't mean. God is the most forgiving person in the universe. We're all going to agree on that, right? Okay. Is everybody going to heaven? No. Then the idea that somebody does something to you and you say, I forgive you, and then they're forgiven, that isn't how God speaks of the word forgiveness. It isn't. If, if somebody is in sin, and they come to God in faith and in repentance, then God forgives them for their sin, and because of that forgiveness, it's active, it makes a difference. We will not see death. When this body dies, we go to be with him. There is, there is genuine fruit of our forgiveness. God forgives us and it's definite. Just like we saw in our studies in Mark's Gospel when, um, when Jesus uh, said, you know, about faith. He healed the man with the withered hand to show, look, I can forgive sins, but, let, but you can't see the fruit of that. Let me show you fruit. I'll heal this man's hand. There's fruit, there's real, genuine fruit and proof of forgiveness. If you are sinned against by somebody and that person sins against you and then you say, I forgive you, it accomplishes nothing. What needs to happen for restoration of the relationship, because that's what forgiveness is. I am separated from God by my sin, but because of faith, God reconciles with me in Christ and that's what forgiveness is. It's the reconciliation between God and man. So for there to be forgiveness in the biblical definition of forgiveness, then not only when someone sins against you must you have the right heart towards them, but they must repent. 
and then relationship can be restored. That's how it works. So when someone sins against you, then you confront them with compassionate heart, with gentleness, with meekness, with humility, but you, you confront them, you speak to them, you deal with it, and then these things can hopefully get aired out, and where necessary, a person can say, I'm sorry. And at that point, you can say, I forgive you. Because what you're doing is you're accepting the apology, the, the, the sin that separated you has been dealt with, and there is now reconciliation and restoration of relationship. Without restoration and reconciliation, it is not biblical forgiveness. They say, hold on a second, I was told different than that. I was told that if someone sins against me and they don't even care, they're not even aware, they won't recognize it, they won't apologize, that I'm to forgive them anyway. Doesn't the Bible say I should do that? Yes, the Bible does say you should do that, but it's called forbearance. That's what forbearance is. So it's not a case of, well, you've sinned against me and I'm not going to forgive you until you repent. It's a case of, this person sinned against me and I'm going to forbear with them and if the Lord brings them to repentance, then I'll forgive them too. I hope that distinction is clear. But what's important in the flow of our text is that both those things are not just things we do. They're not just things that we put on, but contextually, they are the characteristics that define us as Christians. If we are bitter people, got to be careful using that word, because that's another word that means different things in the Bible than in life, but just in, in colloquial English, if we're bitter people, if we harbour grudges, if we hold on to sins against us, then we are being the exact opposite of Christ. And this is what he says. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. What we're doing in this forgiveness is we are mirroring how Christ has, has treated us. Christ doesn't hold grudges against us. And neither must we hold grudges against other people. We mustn't punish people for their sins. People, we mess up all the time. We mess up and don't even know that we've messed up. And you know what? And we say sorry, and we mean it, and we repent, and we still mess up again after that. And that's why we need patience. Because people are like us. Forgiveness and forbearance is a hallmark of being a Christian. Let us not be people who are otherwise. Let Christ shine in us and through us. And then summed up nicely, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What does that mean? What it means is this, is that if you love, then you're going to be kind. If you love, you're going to be compassionate. If you love, you're going to be humble. If you love, you're going to forgive and you're going to forbear. These things are encompassed by love. Love is the number one thing above all other commands because it, it holds together all the other commands. As Christians, we are to love one another. But the danger is, particularly in churches today, the danger is, is that we can say, well, you know what, 
I gave them the scripture and it's what they needed to hear. So that's love. And God knows our hearts. And so he gives us this fuller description so that we understand what it looks like practically. This is love, guys. And this is how we should treat one another. The second command is in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. So what he's saying here in this command, and again, we've seen a couple of times already the emphasis on one another. We've seen the link together. This is for us as a church, loving one another, forgiving one another. The peace of Christ is going to rule in our hearts. Now I think contextually here he's talking about the church. So there is peace that we have with God in Christ. Okay? So, as sinners, we're separated from God. And because we're separated from God as sinners, the wrath of God is upon us. But when we place our faith in Christ, and we are forgiven for our sins, then Christ's wrath is appeased. More, more specifically, his wrath, his anger against our sin, is, was put on Christ in our place that Christ received the punishment for our sin so that we didn't have to. And as such, God is no longer angry with us, and we have peace with him. Now, before I move on with the flow of the, 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 flow of the context here, just hold that thought for a minute. We have peace with God. God doesn't hold grudges. I think too often in our prayer lives, we treat God like a human being. Oh, but I sinned. Maybe I should just avoid God for the next day. You know, he's not going to be happy about that. This is ridiculous. Let's not ad- attribute human characteristics to the holy God. God has dealt with our sin. And when we mess up again and again and again, we confess our sins to him. And he's just and he forgives us from all unrighteousness. We, we, we have forgiveness in Christ. And every time we mess up, we bridge the gap in a, in, a, in a practical, relational sense by confessing and repenting again and again. And God does not hold a grudge because he's at peace with us. He loves us. He's not angry with us. Now, for some of you, this is easy to get. For some of you, this is very hard. God is not angry with you. He's not angry with you. Whatever it was that you did, that you've done, that you stumble over, he's not angry with you. I hope that's clear. Why? Because that anger was poured out on Christ. Don't belittle the cross by thinking he saved some for you. And what that means is we have the sovereign God of the entire universe that we get to call Father and there's not one spot nor residue nor grudge nor problem and we come to him with total confidence. Don't listen to the enemy and don't let him distract you. God is not angry with you. 
Mess up, confess, put it right. But you know what? There are a hundred sins you've done that you don't even know about, so you can't confess them. And he still loves you, and he still forgives you, and he's still not angry with you. Don't live your life in the past. You're clean and forgiven. But in the flow of this text, back to the context, that peace that we have in Christ should rule in our hearts to which you, plural, were called in one body. In other words, the same reconciliatory relationship that we have with God is to be mirrored within this congregation. No anger, no grudges, no bitterness. Love, forbearance, forgiveness, gentleness, kindness. That's it. It's a simple template. Will God do this to them? No. Well, then why am I? It really is that simple. And you know what? As we grow and different people come in, there's always going to be enough people around to irritate you, tread on your toes, not do what you want, rub you up the wrong way. And you haven't got to be best friends with everybody, but you have got to love them. And you have got to forgive them. And if they don't see what they've done, you've got to forbear with them. And you mustn't hold grudges and you must forgive them. No bitterness in your heart, no anger towards them. Love them, love them, love them, love them. And I tell you what, guys, if you do that, it is you who are blessed. It's the most freeing thing. Don't have to carry it around with you. Don't have to live your life out of that place of hurt. That's how we need to be. This is Christian living. This is what it looks like. And finally, the third command of this section is be thankful. <laughs> no expansion, no anything extra, just, and just be thankful. What does he need to add after the previous verses? Peace in Christ, reconciliation. We've, we've got to put on these things and live life this way and we can be thankful Thankful that we have the opportunity to live this way. Thankful that we are saved. Thankful that he's given us his spirit. Thankful that these instructions aren't a burden, but they are our natural growth as Christians. Thankful for all he has done for us. Now, as we come to the next section, the last two verses here of this, of this passage, we have two more commands. And there's a slight shift now in uh, what we do. The, the earlier section is, is, is more, not completely, it's not completely different now, but it's more character driven. And this is really more in, in how we work that out. And it says, and this is a well-known verse, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. So the command is to let the word dwell in us richly. Don't stop it from happening. Let it dwell in you richly. Now, the word of God can mean different things in different contexts. And I think sometimes we're too quick to jump on 
presumed definitions. We saw in Ephesians 6 there was a, a slight uh, distinction in the use of the word, word there. But, but here it seems clear contextually that he's talking, because he talks afterwards about teaching and admonishing, that he's talking about the teaching of Christ, the Word of God. And yes, I understand, he's writing to a church before the canon of Scripture has been completed, but we aren't those people. And it's clear that the principle that he's communicating here can essentially be summed up to us as the Bible. I don't think there's any problem here in just paraphrasing, let the Bible dwell in you richly. That's essentially what we're talking about here. We're talking about the teachings of Christ and of the apostles expanding on the teachings of Christ and clarifying the teachings of Christ and that revelation dwelling in us richly. Look, it's not good enough for Paul simply to say to them, you don't want these additional rules. You don't want these, re these additional re uh, revelations. You don't want your legalism and your mysticism. It's not just that we don't want those things. We don't want those things because of where they've come from and that they're, they're not necessary because we have the sufficiency of all we need in the Word of Christ. And, and this is him essentially balancing out the, we don't, we don't be like this. We don't want to have these things. But what we do want to do is make sure that what we do have dwells in us richly. And I'm, this is what I just don't understand. There are people attending churches where they claim to have prophecies and visions and God's doing this and God's doing that. And I'd love to sit down and say to these people, look, are you familiar with the visions of Ezekiel? What about the visions that God gave Isaiah? Have you studied it in context? Do you understand it? Do you understand how it applies? Do you know how those visions were utilized by the apostles in the New Testament? And I imagine I get a lot of blank stares. And, and this is Paul's point. Why is it that we're seeking after other things when what we do have, we don't, dwell, don't have dwelling in us richly? The church today, and I think almost more than ever, is pursuing legalism and pursuing mysticism. And yet, despite all of our translations, all of our books, all of our study tools, all of our resources, everything you can get for free on the internet, and my goodness is the good stuff out there that you can get for free for no money. More than ever before, the evangelical, Bible-believing church has a superficial relationship with the Bible. You want the answer to this? Here's one verse I've memorized that I pulled out of context. This is why one of the absolute distinctives of my ministry is trying to teach you the flow of a text. To try and show you how this links to what comes before and what comes afterwards. To get the idea of the flow of thought. So you understand the broad patterns of the Bible. You understand the, the emphasis of, 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 uh, of the apostles in how, what the Christian life should look like and how we should live. Because... I don't want you to have superficial relationships with your Bible. Christians think, you know, I get up in the morning, I read a couple of chapters of my Bible, and I've done my Bible reading for the day. Tick. Um, I need to do Bible memorization, so I'll learn John 3.16, and what's another couple of verses I can learn? And, and, it's, and it's not good enough. It's not good enough, guys. 
And is, I understand that it's my job to study the Bible. I understand that's my job. I understand that I get the time and that you guys generally financially provide, so I have the time and I understand that I'm supposed to know more than you. So I'm not, I'm not saying you've got the same responsibility as me. But listen, I may teach you in a formal setting, but it says here that the word of Christ has to dwell in you richly because you are supposed to be teaching. It doesn't mean we're doing shifts, by the way. What it means is, is it means that when someone comes to you in need, you don't just say, oh, that sounds terrible. Let me get the pastor for you. A healthy church is a church where ministry, where counselling, where compassion, where love for one another happens amongst yourselves. Do you know, I remember when um, you know, I was first being given some basic leadership responsibilities at church many, many, many years ago now, and I know that my pastor used to say, he said, you know, it's great, some new people came to church and I know I didn't have to rush over because I know you were talking to them. And he knew I knew my Bible well enough that I wasn't going to say anything heretical. You know, I wasn't going to say and put my foot in it because of lack of compassion or, you know, something like that. And that's what I need as a pastor. I need you guys to be solid. I need you guys to be people who love your Bible, who love your Word, who are excited about Christ. And I need you to be out there. I, you know, we're growing. I can't, I mean, there were a couple of times we've had lots of visitors arrive, and I try and speak to all the visitors, but there's weeks when I haven't managed it. There's weeks where I've got to rush off and do stuff. But you can teach, you can admonish, you can love, you can encourage, you can, you can do all of these jobs. You know, you can give me some time. You could be doing this. And this, that is the hallmark of a healthy church. It's not a... And again, I think it's a unique problem, actually, to really good Bible teaching churches. In that because they get good teaching there is so often an over-reliance on the teacher. That's not my job here. My job here is not for you to rely on me. My job here, and I said this in my very first interview, my job here is to put myself out of a job. My job here is to raise up other people who can do what I do just as well or better. My job is to equip you so that you go around ministering to one another. That's what church should look like. And so you, you teach and you admonish one another from the Word because the Word is dwelling richly within you. Now, you're saying, but I don't have a lot of time for study and what have you. All I'm saying is this. Be obsessed with Jesus and be obsessed with His Word. Get excited about it. And you know, some days you're in a rush and you don't have time. I get it. I understand it. But just, I think more than anything else, it's a question of heart priorities. What that's going to look like in your life practically, depending on the lives you have, and the seasons in your lives. Some of you are going through, you know, you're studying and doing stuff, some of you have busy jobs and stuff, and we all have different seasons in our lives. But to the extent that God has enabled you, mentally, educationally, practically, with regards to time, get to know his word, get to love it. Read books, study, you want tips, you want tools, I'm here. We can point you in the right direction. This, in this day and age, there is no excuse. Get to love his word. Get to understand it. Get excited about it. I still get excited about it. There was some stuff 
that um, we're teaching tonight in Mark's Gospel. And I was like looking at something and oh, I got the connection and I was like, oh! And I'm like a kid in a toy shop. It's like, I get it. I understand that now. And I, and I, I'm, I'm itching. I said to, uh, I said to Jen, because I always know when I've made a good point, because Jen's at the back there going, oh, yeah. And I, know, I know if I make her happy that I've, I've done a good job. So, so I'm saying to her yesterday, I said, I've got something really good in Mark this week, and I'm really excited for you to hear it. And that's, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, just that the Bible excites us, that we want to understand it, we want to put it together. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And uh, uh, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So we use the wisdom that we have in Christ to teach and admonish because we have the source of that wisdom, which is the word within us. And then he goes on. And this is interesting. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And again, we have a real parallel here with Ephesians, which went through a very, very similar thing. In the, remember in the passage it talked about being filled by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God filling us and empowering us. Then, um, then the, uh, the context there, again, was singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's why... I'm now starting to you know, veto songs and being careful over what we sing. And when, when uh, Jenny and Robert and Craig bring new songs to us, I'm checking them beforehand. Because one of the ways that we minister is through song. You know? And a lot of you, you know, you know, sometimes it's too hard to concentrate on a sermon when you're driving and stuff, but you can be singing. You can listen to praise and stuff. And, and some people are more musically minded and some aren't. And I like the emphasis of the text here. The, the point here is thankfulness in our hearts towards God. And for many of us, that's going to come through these, um, these different means. The Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, I've heard people in sermons try and distinguish between these with the, the finest of fine tooth combs. Guys, we don't have the information available. But what is clear is that there's different songs that we can sing, different types, and we have a mixture of stuff here. And, you know, I think that musically, uh, music is a tool for us to worship God. It, it is a wonderful opportunity. And what it does is it, it rhythmically enforces what we're singing into our hearts. That's one thing that's happening. Like you get a 12-year-old kid who, who can't remember anything when they got a test at school, but knows all the lyrics to the, to the song on the new album they're listening to. You know, off by heart. I mean, what is that? Well, Partly it's because they're more interested in that, but partly it's because music has that way of just drilling stuff into us. That's why we've got to be so, so careful with the doctrine that we sing. It's just very, very important. My responsibility, if I ever let anything slip through, if you see something that we sing and you think, is that right theologically? Tell me, come to me. Things do slip through the gaps. We need to get it right because it reinforces it. But secondly, I think the other way in which music works and why Paul does emphasize it, is because music works with our emotions. And we don't want to be people who are, are just rigid, and we're not rigid, that's not the word, but we, we're just about the word, and this point, and that point, and logic, and what have you. There's a point where our hearts should just explode for Christ, and music is a very natural way for that to happen. It happens in all cultures, in all societies, young and old, there are people who express themselves through music. You know? 
People, when they end a relationship, make a mixtape of breakup songs because everyone's written about you know broken hearts for, for centuries. Why? Because when you're that emotional, that's your medium. And it's right and it's good. And I'm not one for emotionalism in worship. But we want to be careful not to go to the other way. We want to understand that to be joyful is a good thing. It's good to be joyful about what God's done for us, and it's natural to express that through song and through music. And that's part of the reason that we do worship. I know some people will come to a church and they'll say, you know, I'm not really a singy person. I don't really do music. I, really... I think this is something that's universal. Paul mentions it here, and he mentions it in Ephesians. It's part of his summary of what the Christian life looks like. And I don't see, biblically, a, a normal Christian life that doesn't include the use of music to worship God. And I'm not a musical person particularly. I'm not really big on, on, on music. I'm not someone, and I'd rather listen to a, someone teach a sermon than listen to worship albums, you know. But, but I see it in scripture and I say, you know, but this is an important vehicle for us to communicate our feelings. And I always like to slip this in. When we look at the Psalms and we look at all the songs that we sing, we see the joyfulness, we see the repetition of God's character and who he is and worshiping him for who he is and his name. And that's so central to the Psalms but we also see laments in the Psalms. Songwriters, we need corporate laments for church singing to mourn over our sin, the sin of the world, to mourn the brokenness in our individual lives, because in the same way that someone who is mourning can still be joyful because of the good things that God has done, so equally, those of us who are joyful in our lives can come alongside those who mourn. And the lament psalms were a vehicle for God's people to do that corporately. And it is the most blatantly neglected thing in our churches today. I've got an issue with that, so I always slip it in there. So anyway, thankfulness again. Thankfulness in our hearts as we sing these songs and we're, we're reminding ourselves of the character of God as we sing. Verse 17. Last verse. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So our third mention of thankfulness, you can see a pattern developing here. And here is a wonderful verse. You've got to understand in the lead up to this, this is the end of this section, we're going to hit the household code, which will finish the practical stuff, and then he wraps things up. Um, and here in this section, it's quite a concluding statement. And I think there's a lot... It, it, pardon me, it, contains, it contains a lot of information, a lot of presumptions that have carried through from the rest of the book. Okay? So as we look at what he's taught us already, he's taught us about the heresies of legalism and mysticism. He's taught us you know, that these rules, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, these additional rules aren't of Christ. And he's taught us that what we have in the word of Christ is sufficient. And in that context, because that's an important context, we're told that in everything we do, whether word or deed, which is a common um, combination, just means everything. It means not just what, we, what, we're, what we're practically doing, what we're thinking um, as well, our hearts in, in every sense. In everything that we do, we do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, here's why this, this wraps all that up. Because 
why is it that people want extra rules? Why do they want extra rules? I mean, don't we have enough? We want clarification. They want clarification. I always pick on the uh, chartering books at churches because I remember one day going through a Christian bookstore and just being bowled over by it. But you know, you get Christian books on chartering from all different perspectives and they all disagree with each other and they're all that thick. And what Paul has to say and what the scriptures have to say about chartering is actually very small. It's really very small. And so what we want is we want, well, well what do I do about this situation? What do I do in this specific situation in my life? And so we like it sometimes when people come along and say, oh, well, the Bible says you should do this. Brilliant, I know what to do now. But it's not that simple. And and this, to me, is absolutely crucial for us to get the the understanding of the Colossians here, the understanding of Christian life, is there are going to be multiple situations in your life that are what I call, what, what, what what we call generally, amoral decisions okay now that means not moral decisions things that are right not immoral decisions things that are wrong but things that are sort of neither right nor wrong like everybody would like to have a verse in the bible saying you can watch that tv program that's popular right now but not that one you can listen to this music but not that music And you know what? It's not there. Tough. Get over it. Really seriously. Just get over it. We're just going to have to learn to deal with that. But this is what we are going to do. Everything that we do, that we listen, that we watch, that we do, our lives, our hobbies, the things that we do, we do it in the name of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that when I go out on a run like I did this morning, that I say, okay, Lord, this run is for you, in Jesus' name. No, it doesn't mean that. The name of Jesus is not, and we need to clarify this again and again because there is still misunderstanding. The name of Jesus is not abracadabra. People think that, don't they? Lord, I pray for this. Amen. It didn't happen. I forgot. Lord, I pray for this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, that'll do the trick now. It's like a little abracadabra, isn't it? It's not. It's not. In the name of God, I should maybe should read a little Old Testament verse. Um, in the name of God is talking about the character, the character of God. Let me read a little bit from the book of uh, Micah. For all the people walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. Those people, those other nations, they worship other gods and they live in a way that is appropriate for those gods. But we, we worship Yahweh. We worship Yahweh and we're going to walk, live our lives in his name in a way that is fitting with the character of the God that we worship. That's what we're going to do. So what he's saying here is he's saying, look, whatever it is you do, do it in a way that is in harmony with the character of Christ. That's it. 
And, and it's a powerful thing because in doing that, then everything can be made holy. Everything can be sanctified. Everything can be for God. You know, I, I go out and I run and I process and I think about the stuff I've been reading and my sermons come to fruition on runs. I pray for, for, for myself, for my family, for you guys on my runs. It's my time. And I interact with other people you know, by running with friends and, and, and running clubs and races and things like that. And I have interaction. And there's an opportunity for me to show the character of God in me, to show the power of Christ in me. And it's just it's a silly example, but it's just me taking something that's completely amoral, that means a lot to me, and making it godly. And you can do that with your work, with your hobbies, with your day-to-day -day life. You can do it with, your, with the things that you watch and you view and your viewing habits and what have you. And it, you know, it just means not just... We don't have... And I know that the, the cults are huge on this. But unlike them, we don't have the luxury for compartmentalism. We don't, we're not people who go to church and we're Christians and we come out from church and you know what, I'm going to watch a bit of TV and I'm going to... We use the expression, don't we? Switch off. We switch on and we switch off. Meaning, I just want to forget about everything and I have my me time now. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that I get the concept and I wholeheartedly embrace the concept and we all need to switch off at times. But we mustn't ever switch off from Christ. We need to let him, him and his character impact upon us. And I tell you what, and this is the thing that Christians find so, so hard, it's going to be different for each one of us. There'll be one Christian who will say, I can't listen to that music because the language is offensive. And there'll be another Christian that says, I need to hear what that broken person is expressing in their brokenness so that I can understand and have compassion. Both of those options are valid. What isn't valid is to just switch off and for it to be something that is apart from Christ. And I think this is just a lovely running, rounding up and summarizing. And so, and here's a nice little thing, the last point to end on. When we do that, when we take our, love, our, our, our loves, our desires, our life, our jobs, and everything that we do, and we make it holy, and we sanctify it unto God, and we do it all in the name of Christ, we do it with thankfulness. I'm thankful, God, that I get to watch this TV program. That people went and they made something and they put it together. I think one of our congregations is actually making a movie today, aren't they? But it, putting it together, making it a movie so that I could be entertained. Because it's enabling me to put aside the stresses of my day and to relax a little bit. And I'm thankful for the opportunity. I'm thankful I live nearer while that happens. Now, that, to some people, that's abhorrent. That's like, oh, that's not a godly thing. Ah, let's get this idea out of our head. There's not just godly things and ungodly things. In the middle, there's amoral things that we get to make godly by doing it in the name of Christ and giving thanks to God. And that, I, guys, if you can take that away from the book of Colossians. We don't want legalism. We don't want mysticism. We want the word of God. We want it to dwell in us richly. And from that point of strength, we're going to take the mundane and we're going to make them holy. 
and we're going to live our lives for Christ who died for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this wonderful book. Every time I'm in Colossians, I'm just again and again bowled over by just how relevant it is to our 21st century lives. Thank you, Lord. I pray that everyone here today and everyone listening later will hear what it is that you're saying to them through your word, by your spirit, and their hearts and minds and lives will be changed. Mine included, Lord. Help us to, to go back this week to look at these characteristics. Am I loving? Am I forgiving, forbearing? Am I kind? Am I humble? Lord, may we put on these things in our homes, with our families, with our church. May we walk in your name. Amen.